relax. You'll be fine. <laughs> he, he heaved this heavy sigh as he walked up here. <laughs> We're happy to have Kyle speak to us on hope this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as he begins. Father, thank you that we can be here this morning. Thank you for Kyle. And we just pray now, Lord, as you speak through him, he opens the word to us. You would just bless what he has to say and bless us as we open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear it. We just ask it all in your name. Amen. Good morning. As always, I hope you all have had a good week. And I hope as the holiday season continues upon us, as we transition from Thanksgiving into Christmas, that you have lots of time to spend with family and friends and reflect on memories. And uh, I know that the Bible I'm using today looks like it's had some better days. It has. Um, But it's special to me because it was a gift from my uncle and aunt when I graduated the eighth grade. And it's also the King James Bible that we keep in our house. And we're going to be reading part of the Christmas story today. And I don't know if it's nostalgia or if it's just memories from being with my grandfather when he would read it. But there's something about hearing the Christmas story in King James that's just different. Kind of like the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 23. So that's why I'll be using that today. And as we said, the Christmas season is upon us, and we're in the season of Advent, and we're speaking on hope today. I, uh, I checked with Heidi beforehand to make sure, and she told me that we were, so I was happy about that. But uh, <clears throat> during this season, for those of us who are parents, well, what do we start receiving from our kids? Well, we start receiving a wish list or a hope list. And how many times have you heard the words, I hope I get this? I hope we do that. I hope that on Christmas Day we get to see Moma and Papa or hang out with Uncle Bubba. There's all these hopes that your kids start expressing. And when they do that, they're expressing two different types of hope. They're expressing a hope that is uncertain because they don't know what they will receive. And they're expressing a hope of something that will be certain. Christmas Day will come upon us. And so the two different types of hope and certainty and uncertainty, when you look at the hopes of humanity, you would say that there is a hope of man and there is a hope of Christ. There is a hope of the Christian. The hope of man is in uncertain things and the hope of Christ is in him, our eternal savior. And if we define these terms on a little deeper level, we would begin with the with the hope of man. Now, how would you define hope if you were thinking about it? The way you use it in your everyday life, the way you speak about it to your family and friends, what would your definition be? For many of us, we would probably define hope as a desire. We hope that this happens. We hope that that happens. We hope that our illness will go away. We hope that our car makes it to the mechanic before it breaks down. But just because man has hope in something, man has a desire For a certain outcome to occur, that doesn't mean that it necessarily will, because we are in his will. Man's hope, man's desire is in that which he cannot control. And it mostly focuses us on the present as well, because man's hope, man without Christ, is focused on the carnal. It's focused on the worldly. It's often focused on the present moment, on something that we are trying to overcome, and on an outcome that we desire. And in that, it almost keeps us stagnant because we stop looking forward to the future because we are so focused on the present and the desire of the time at hand. But biblical hope or Christian hope 
is much different than that. A biblical hope is based on something outside of ourselves. Biblical hope is based on Jesus Christ. And because it is based on Christ, there is a certainty that comes with it. There is a confidence in the eternal that we have in our hope that is based on him. You would almost say that biblical hope is anticipatory in nature. There's an anticipation with it. And if you want to look into these terms a little more, there's a YouTube channel, The Bible Project, and they have a video on hope where the theologian Tim Mackey kind of goes through and defines all the different words for hope. And you can see from Genesis to Leviticus, the Psalms to the cross and afterwards how hope and its definition is constantly changing. It's constantly moving. It is a living hope as you go through the scriptures. And the way that he defines Christian hope is he states that Christian hope is anticipating a future that is better than the present. It is a state of anticipation. It is a state of existence for us who believe in Christ as our Savior. It is a state of constantly looking forward to the time when we will be with him. We said last week when we were taking communion that it was a declaration of hope of the day that we will commune with him in eternity. And so it is with Christian faith. And so I think a a quote that I came across that I think is applicable in this is you've heard me talk before about the theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And probably one of my favorite quotes, I'm sure I've used it before, is the quote he has where he states that life can only be understood looking backwards, but it must be lived moving forward. To understand where you are, you must examine your decisions from the past And even though you move forward into the mystery of the unknown, you will eventually understand it when at time that is the past and you can reflect on it. Future hope is always based on past events. And so you take that and you can put that into our faith and you can say that as Christians, we have hope in the eternal because we reflect back on the cross of Christ and the resurrection and the sacrifice that he made for us and his grace and his mercy. And because we can reflect on that, it gives us hope moving forward as we continually go closer to the eternal. But this is not something that's just relevant to us today. This was something that you see in the Israelites in the Old Testament as well. How many times when you read through the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy and the Psalms, and Samuel, whenever you see the Israelites coming up to something that was going to be difficult, something that was going to be trying, Moses or another leader would constantly remind them and reflect them back to God's faithfulness in the past. Remember the Lord your God. Remember the Lord your God that delivered you from the hand of Pharaoh. Remember the Lord your God that delivered you from Pharaoh in Egypt. There's constantly a reminder of the hope that they had in the past and God's faithfulness because most oftentimes the hope that you have in this moment and God's faithfulness will be what you reflect back on in the future to give you courage to continue to press forward, to continue to press forward in him. Future hope from reflection, though, was not just something that was was relevant only to the Israelites. This happened on an individual level as well. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, you see King David talking to Nathan, and he tells them that he's wanting to build a temple. To quote David, he states that, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. So here I am living in this palace in this amazing house and the ark of God is being kept in a tent. You can almost sense David's emotion in that as if he knows that there is something wrong in this. 
And so it says that the word of the Lord came upon Nathan, and Nathan went and talked to David. And in this moment, the Lord honors David by giving him a hope for future things to come. And he states, I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own. Wicked people will not oppress them. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, I will raise up your offspring to secede you. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And so you see here that the Lord is telling David to have hope in the future because Israel will have a place and Israel will be safe from its enemies and David will have peace and he will raise up a house in his name. And if you continue reading, you will see that David is not the one who will build the temple, but his son Solomon is. And so there's a hope in all these things that will happen. And some of them David will not even be alive to see. He won't see the temple being constructed. So how is it that he has hope in future events and things to come? Well, it's because of the verses prior. The Lord begins before he tells him of the hope of the future by reflecting back with David on the fact that the Lord was always with him. It states in 2 Samuel 7, 8, and 9 that I took you from the pasture and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. From facing Goliath to fleeing Saul to battling his son Absalom to the kingship that he had over Israel. Every single time David had another trial, he always had a moment to reflect back on to give him hope in getting through that in the Lord. And so there's this moment in time where we have Old Testament hope in the Messiah and New Testament hope in a confidence of eternal salvation kind of coming together. Now, we know that that crosses over at the cross, but there's a moment where this begins to happen. Where the chain of events begin to where the way that man defines hope will begin to change. And that is when Christ Jesus, our eternal hope, entered into the world and the angel of the Lord and heavenly host announced him. But they announced him to a group of people that we probably would not expect. So turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 20. Luke 2, 7 through 20. Now, just kind of a reminder of where we're at, because we are in the beginning of the Gospel here. But what you would have seen if you, we, you read through chapter 1 of Luke is... Obviously, there's all these Old Testament prophecies. And then we have Zechariah, the priest Zechariah. And you might remember from when we were studying the Gospel of John together a little bit ago, when we were talking about John the Baptist, that the priest Zechariah was John the Baptist's father. And he was in the temple, and he saw Gabriel. And Gabriel came and told him that you will have the son that you have been praying for. And Zechariah kind of questioned this. Well, how can this be because of my age? And so because of his unbelief, he was silenced and he could not speak. But Zechariah could not speak until the time that his son John was born. And it says that when John was born, the Holy Spirit filled Zechariah and spoke through him. And he gave prophecy about his son John and everything that would come to be. But he also spoke of the horn of salvation. The power of salvation being at hand. And so the people would have kind of recognized all of this and they would have transitioned from a waiting hope to a hope of tension because something was beginning to go on. 
And then a few months after John the Baptist's birth, this event would happen that we're going to read together. If you haven't already, Luke chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 7 through 20. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Now, when we read that, the first question that comes to my mind, at least, is why shepherds? Why was this revealed to shepherds? Now, we're going to talk about that here in a second, but to kind of <clears throat> kind of pause and sidetrack here real quick. We are talking about hope, but we're going to sidetrack and point this out real fast. OK, we talked in the Gospel of John about how John and Exodus overlapped. And you'll also notice that when you see the life of Christ, you'll see the life of Jesus and Moses overlapping. Now, if you were to read Exodus chapter 3, the story of the burning bush, you will see that the angel of the Lord was inside the burning bush and he spoke to a shepherd attending his flock, Moses, the one who would free the people from Israel. And so now here we are in Luke and the one who will free mankind from the slavery of sin has arrived, and once again the angel of the Lord goes and speaks to shepherds. So there's an overlapping here in the embodiment of Christ in the New Testament and the Old Testament crossing. But also here, when you to go back to hope, why was this revealed to shepherds? There's many different opinions by theologians, but there's three that always stick out. One was that he is the good shepherd. He calls himself that in John chapter 10. So... There is a type of symbology here. The good shepherd has arrived, and so shepherds, those who will watch over his flock, come, and they kneel down to him. The second is that it is the task of shepherds. If he is the good shepherd, well, what do shepherds do? Shepherds watch over their flock. They protect them. They guide them. They make sure that they have peace and rest. And so the Lord does to us as well as our shepherd. He guides us and watches over us and takes us through the valleys. But the, the major consensus on why this happened 
is because of the lowly class of the shepherds. The fact that they were the lower class. Excuse me. All throughout the life of Christ, when you read about him in the Gospels, you will see that he is constantly revealing himself to the lower class, the lower rung of society, the societal outcast, those who have no hope. And he is giving them hope, but it is a hope that is based and focused on him, and it is from him. And so most of the time in these days, shepherds would be young men or boys, it was very rare to see an older man who was a shepherd. They would have no land, probably no family. They'd be gone for large amounts of time, and they would also be uneducated. They wouldn't have a knowledge of the scriptures that the higher rungs of society would have. And yet, it was them who this was revealed to, the same as it was the Samaritan woman, the same as it was the Samaritans in that village who declared him to be the savior of the world, The shepherds, the ill, the poor, the empty tomb first being found by the woman Mary Magdalene. It is always a societal outcast, those who were not respected, those who did not have a voice, whom the revelation of Christ was coming to and giving hope. And when these people saw these shepherds, can you imagine what was going on? These shepherds come into town, abandoning their flock completely, and they're telling everyone what they had seen and what had happened and that they had found this child And they leave town praising God. That would just, when you reflect back on what had happened to the priest Zechariah and then this had happened, there would be a stirring among the people. Of course they were wondering and marveling at the words of the shepherd and what they were being told. Because there was a snowball effect that was beginning. You see, we reflect back on on the fact that the world was never the same after Christ entered into it. You have Zechariah and his silence. And then Zechariah declaring and prophesying what will happen after his son is born. And then a few months after that, you have this event with the shepherds when Christ is born. And then about 25, 28 years later, Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, he comes out of nowhere, out of the wilderness, and he begins teaching and baptizing. And then he begins being questioned by those who are seeking, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests, are you the Messiah? And he tells them, no, but the one who is coming after me, I am not worthy to even lace his sandal. And then this man, Yeshua, or Jesus, arrives, and he begins teaching, and John the Baptist declares that he is the Lamb of God. And then John the Baptist's disciples leave John, and they go and follow him. And then he begins teaching in the synagogues, and he reads Isaiah 61 and tells people that this has been fulfilled within your hearing, meaning that this is speaking of me. And then he's healing people and he's doing miracles and he's exercising demons and showing total control over the spiritual realm. And then he is crucified and he is resurrected. And then his followers take off and they preach the hope of Christ as it spreads all throughout the land, all throughout the world. Old Testament hope transitions into New Testament hope after Christ has entered the world. Now, the two words that you will find for hope in the Old Testament are yakal and kavah. Yakal is a, a waiting hope, an anticipating hope. It is a hope in something that you know will come. And kavah is a hope, kavah is a hope that is kind of a hope of tension. So like if you're pulling on a cord, you know eventually it's going to snap. And so that tension of anticipation of what will come 
That is kavah. So the prophet Micah, when he's talking about farmers waiting on the morning dew, he says that they are yakal and kavah. They are waiting on that which they know will come, and they are anticipating that which will come because they know that when it does, it will help their plants and their livestock and their crops. And so that is what Christ was when the Messiah came. He was that which the children of Israel were waiting for, and he was that which they were anticipating. And you can feel that tension building all the way up to the resurrection, and then you see it go out into the world as they take the word forward. But after the cross, when you're in the New Testament, there's a Greek word for hope that comes up. And that word is elpis. And elpis is the word for hope that the disciple Peter uses in 1 Peter 1 when he describes hope in Christ as a living hope. And if you go to BibleStudyTools.com and you want to look up the definition of this word, E-L-P-I-S, this is what you will see. Elpis, hope, is an expectation of good. In the Christian sense... It is a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. It is a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. So when you see Peter say in 1 Peter 1, 3, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you take that definition, it reads, He has given us a new birth into a living, confident expectation of eternal salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is awesome, is it not? As we look forward into eternity, it is because we were reflecting back on the cross. And this hope, this confidence in the eternal salvation is something that is very evident in the body. And it's something that sometimes we talk about at work at my job. I, I see this a lot at my job between believers and unbelievers. Now, for those of you that don't know what I do for a job, I'm a claim specialist for the Social Security Administration. I work in an office down in Nevada, and part of my job is taking different claims, right? I take retirement claims and lump sum claims, all, all sorts of fun stuff. But, <laughs> but two of the claim types that you take are disability claims and survivor or widow's claims. And I will tell you, when you talk to people that are terminal and you talk to women that have lost their husbands, there is such a difference in believers and unbelievers. When you speak to someone that is terminal, they are so angry at what is going on. There is just a rage inside of them because of how unfair it is. And when you speak to an unbeliever that is also going through a terminal illness... They do have a frustration because we're human. They do have a a sense of why is this happening, but they speak differently. You hear them say things like, well, if this heads south, I guess I'll just be with Christ. And they use the moment also that they're in to witness to people. Sometimes we as claim specialists get asked by people in these situations, can I ask you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? And you say yes, and then... Sometimes they'll, they'll break down in that moment and they'll be like, well, will you please pray with me because I'm scared to death. And so you put your headset down and you grab your Bluetooth and you run back to the break room so no one sees you and you kneel and you pray with them. And, and uh, it's amazing sometimes the moments that come when hope is shared among believers. And when you see that, you see that most through the eyes of a widow. 
A widow who is an unbeliever who has lost her husband, she is so angry. The greatest thing that ever happened to her is gone. I mean, it's just sometimes they'll get married three days after. You just can't believe the stuff we come across. But a widow whose husband was a godly man, a widow whose husband led her in the love of Christ, that living hope that is within her makes the situation so much easier for her. You hear things like, well, I hate that Tom is gone, but I'm glad that he's not suffering anymore and I know where he's at. Or you hear them say things like, Tom fought cancer for years and I hate that he went, but I told him our boys are within driving distance and our girl lives down the road, so just go ahead and go home. I'll be fine. It is a total difference in the way the situation is looked at because the hope for the future and the eternal gives them a peace now in the present. Because faith is a living hope, as Peter tells us. For us as Christians, it is a hope that is constantly moving us forward. Two steps forward, one step back. We constantly move forward into the unknown, trusting in Christ to guide us because of the faithfulness that he has shown us and because of the love that he has shown us. A focus on the eternal will always move us forward, even if it moves us forward unto death. Death is not to be feared. Death is simply a gateway. And I know that that is easier said than to face or to experience. But for those of us who have hope in Christ, there is a confidence in that, that we know that we will be with him, and that no matter what happens, we can trust in that. It is a hope and certainty. Now, the world has never been the same after the Savior, Jesus Christ, entered into it, along with eternal hope that was being brought to man. When the shepherds heard the good news and sought the Messiah, found him, and declared the happenings to the people, the people marveled and wondered. Yet it's that same hope that we see people declare all throughout the Gospels about our Lord Jesus Christ. The shepherds were only the beginning, the beginning of revelation, the beginning of seeking him, the beginning of rejoicing from him, the beginning of praising him, and the beginning of of having a hope that is focused on him and a hope that comes from him, a hope that can only come from Jesus Christ. And so to end today with a little bit of a challenge and with a quote from Billy Graham, the challenge would be to take time to reflect on the fact that you do have eternal hope in the future. For those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, and for those of you that that need to pray a prayer of salvation or you want to come before him, please find an elder or a brother and we will pray with you and we will talk with you. But for those of us who are, reflect back on his past faithfulness and how that helps you carry forward into the future. Because in the words of Billy Graham, for the believer there is hope beyond the grave because Jesus Christ has opened the door to heaven for us by his death and resurrection. There is hope In the name of Jesus, let's pray. Christ, I thank you for the hope that you give us. I thank you for the season that we have in this nation to be able to be grateful and spend time with family and friends and reflect on past memories. And I pray that we do that with you as well. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the cross and your resurrection. 
And I thank you for the hope that we have that no matter what may come, we will be with you. I pray that that constantly be a reminder that we get this week as we go forward into the world as a body that we we come across reminders that we have hope in you. And maybe we even have opportunities to tell people of that hope. We praise your name and we thank you for all things that you've given us. Amen.